I've suffered from imposter syndrome my entire life. I still do from time to time, so I haven't figured out how to get over it, but I have figured out how to work through it and just live with it. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. My guest today is Shelley Archambeau. Shelley has had an extraordinary corporate career. After many years with IBM, she moved on to become president of Blockbuster.com and went on to join a struggling startup and turn it into Metricstream, now a major global SaaS company. It was here where she became one of Silicon Valley's first black female CEOs. As a child growing up in a largely white neighborhood, she was bullied and discriminated against. In her early career, self-doubt meant she lost out on opportunities. She's now authored a book, Unapologetically Ambitious, to tell the story of how she weathered life's difficulties to build massive success. Shelley, I'm going to start by reading a line from your book. Quote, I've always believed that no matter where your life begins, you can make yourself luckier. Can you talk to us a bit about this? Yes, I've learned early in life that the odds just weren't in my favor. I grew up at a time when there was just a lot of discrimination, etc. So I thought, you know, if I just do what everybody else does, I won't get what I want out of life. So this notion of being making yourself luckier was all about how do you improve your odds to get what you want? So I spent my entire life trying to figure out what it is I want and then how to improve the odds which is all about preparation, education, connections, right? All of those things help you improve your odds. And when you do that, you actually make yourself luckier. I love it so much. Okay, I'd like to go back in time a little bit, rewind the clock to Shelley Archambault, the teenager. You knew you wanted to be CEO from quite a young age. Can you paint a picture of what you were like back then? Oh, certainly. So here I was a tall, gangly girl. I grew tall really early. And as a result, my ligaments didn't keep up with my knees. I couldn't do sports. So my sport became clubs. I was involved in everything. French club, American field service, national honor society. I mean, you name it. I was even a Girl Scout, but nobody talked about that back then because it wasn't cool. And I ended up having this conversation with my guidance counselor when I was a junior in high school about what I wanted to do after I graduated from college. And I told her I have no idea. I knew I wanted a job that would allow me to travel, eat out in restaurants, and keep my thermostat at 72 degrees because I grew up (laughs) in a very modest household and I couldn't do any of those things. And when she asked me what I like to do, and I said, oh, clubs, she told me, she said, Shelly, clubs are like businesses. You pull people together and get things done. And I thought, oh, great. I love clubs. So I'll go into business and I like running these clubs. So when I looked up, the people that ran businesses were called CEOs. 
So I said, great, I'll go be a CEO. <laughs> I was that naive and that audacious. <laughs> God, I, I just, I really love that early ambition. I'm quite jealous of your guidance counselor as well. It's something I've always slightly envied in people who really know what they want to be when they grow up. One thing that really comes across with you is that you're someone who's really good at knowing what you want, putting a plan together and then, and then going for it. And one thing I've always struggled with in the past is, is knowing what to aim for. I mean, I'm quite focused now, but it's taken me a while. For anyone listening who does struggle a bit with direction, what's your advice? What would your guidance counselor say? Yeah. Well, my biggest advice is if you're not sure what you want to do, then just treat what you're going to do as a building block. You know, for many of us, when we go to college, the first set of classes we take are not the classes we like dreamed of taking all of our lives, but they're classes that we have to take to build a foundation towards our major or whatever it might be. Well, think of your job as the same thing. So if you don't know what you want to do, go find a job in an area that's in demand. Why? Because you'll learn skills. You'll learn skills that will be valuable and transferable. So even if you decide mm, this isn't the job for me, you will at least have a set of skills that you can use to parlay and pivot into the next thing. Oh, such good practical advice. So Shelley, one thing that I would really love to get some insight to is what drives you. And I've already quoted at you from your book. I'm going to do it once more. So I'm going to read a couple of lines from actually the foreword of your book, which was written by Ben Horowitz. He's telling the story of how you were, you were offered the job, the CEO job at Zaplet, which was a company in a downward spiral. He was advising you not to take the job and he knew that you were going to ignore his advice. So he writes, Shelley wasn't optimizing for a personal financial outcome, glory or a career boost. She was looking for the ultimate test of her leadership skills. She was like a great boxer who wanted to fight the most dangerous opponents to prove she was the best. She was attracted to, rather than repelled by, the insanely high degree of difficulty that Zaplet posed. I mean, firstly, what a cool thing for someone to have written about you. Yes, it really was. I was blown away, frankly, when he sent it to me. Oh, so yeah, I mean, most people, I imagine they do want the top jobs because they want the money, the glory or the career boost. Can you talk to us about what it is that, that drives you? I felt like so much of my life was spent hearing from people that they didn't believe in me, that they didn't think I could do something. And so what drove me was I wanted to prove that I could do it. I want to prove that I was just as capable. That's what's really driven me is number one, I want to prove that I am capable of doing the things that I want to do. And two, I wanted to inspire others behind me. It's something I still do. I want people to see that, hey, if I could do it, I mean, little Shelley Archambault, right? You grew up with modest means. Father didn't have a college degree. We moved all over the place. I was a new kid in schools, you know, in seven different states. I mean, if I could do it, then you can do it. So it was a combination. I love it. I, I just, I'm full of admiration for you and your story. And you have a chapter in your book called Beware of Imposter Syndrome. As the theme of this podcast is really about self-doubt and limiting beliefs, I'd love to zoom in here. And I have to say, I felt a bit, well, a little bit choked up reading some of the stories you shared about when you were you were little. You described growing up in a very white neighborhood. You experienced uh, some pretty nasty racial abuse, bullying, being excluded. And uh, as you write, early childhood experiences like these can lead to a nasty case of imposter syndrome later in life. Can you share a bit about the impact this had on you? Well, I've suffered from imposter syndrome my entire life. I still do from time to time, Pippa, which is really ridiculous. <laughs> it is, um, it is. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Stop it, Shelley. So, I know. 
know. So I haven't figured out how to get over it, Mm. but I have figured out how to work through it and just live with it. And, you know, I try to share with people what I learned is this whole thing called imposter syndrome, you know, that little voice that creeps up in your head, the little one that says, wait till they figure out that you don't really know what you're doing. You know, wait till people learn that you aren't as smart as they think they are, right? Right. They think you are. All those things that self-doubt, like, oh, you're not ready. You shouldn't do it. Don't take the risk. Well, that little voice is something that turns out most people hear at some point or another. More women suffer from imposter syndrome than men and women of color actually the most. So what that says is it's not you. That voice you're hearing, it's not just in your head. It's in everybody's heads. Well, if it's everywhere, that means it's kind of in the air. It's like, you know, the airwaves comes across the television, right? So what do you do when you get scared or you don't like something that's on TV? You turn the thing off. That voice that you're hearing, it's not real. Turn the thing off. And if that doesn't work for you, then remember the only time you feel it is when you are getting ready to do something new. Somebody's offered you a new job, a promotion, maybe an invitation to join a group, the opportunity to speak, right? Something new. And when you get that something new is when your eyes are like, ooh, am I ready? Do I know enough? Will I be good? Am I going to follow my face? Right? All that stuff. But just remember, they wouldn't have offered you the job, invited you into the group, asked you to speak if they didn't believe that you could do it and would do a good job. So if you can't believe in yourself, believe them when they tell you you're ready. And if that doesn't work, then fake the confidence. Fake the confidence, because here's the key. If you think about it, I mean, really think about it, Pippa, you always figure it out. I mean, eventually you figure it out. So you're going to figure it out. Therefore, give yourself the benefit of the doubt. Walk in, not that you know everything, but walk in like, okay, I've got this under control because I'm going to figure this out. Hmm. So those are the steps that I've taken throughout my career to push through when my mind is telling me, don't do it, stop, right? Be careful, all those things. That's what I do. Yeah. There's little tricks like this that I, I love to learn. It, it always amazes me how I can actually trick my mind a bit. I, I can trick myself into being happy if I'm not feeling that happy. You know, if you start fake smiling, eventually it somehow turns real, right? Yes. So one thing I was just going to mention in regard to your, your childhood is your parents sound fantastic. They sound like such strong figures in your life. They were. They really were. My parents were very focused on raising their kids and they wanted to do it in a way that would prepare us for life. So we weren't, we didn't get a lot of coddling <laughs> per se. <laughs> we got a lot of tough love. Yeah. You know, we, for many kids, something happens to you, you know, somebody pushes you, you don't get picked for something, whatever, something happens. And you come home and say, you know, mom, mom, it's not fair, right? I didn't get a turn or no one gave me this or whatever it might be. And my mother would kind of look at me and say, well, Shelly, life isn't fair. But it's like, well, that's not what I want to hear, right? I want to hear that they have a turn, so I should have a turn. But her whole thing was, life's not fair. So what are you going to do about it? So that was, a, you know, back to the tough love. And it's very true. So if you don't look for fairness, then you're not disappointed. And then you work on how to take things into your own hands to improve your odds and therefore improve your luck. That's really good advice. My father was always you know, life's not fair as well, which I didn't really appreciate at the time, but now I can see how that was actually <laughs> exactly. very, very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, one thing you said about them that I really liked is that they, they never let you believe that your race was holding you back in any way. Yeah, that was definitely true. If things happened, 
they never blamed it on who I was. And they always said, well, got to work harder next time or, you know, whatever it might be. And it really wasn't until I was you know, close to being, well, I was an adult, really, that my mom, you know, shared with me some of the stories and the things where they absolutely knew what the issue was, Mm -hmm. but they didn't want me to see it as a barrier or see it as something that when things happened, used it as a crutch or a reason why, right? I couldn't do something. That seems really valuable. Yeah, it's hard at the time, though, because you're feeling stupid. You know, I tell the story (laughs) about I was invited to the Gifted Intelligent program when I was in like fifth grade. Then all of a sudden I wasn't in the program and I was the only kid not in the program. And so you're thinking, okay, so I wasn't smart enough, right? I'm not good enough. And it wasn't until I was an adult. Mother's like, yeah, we know what happened there, but we couldn't tell you that. Mom just said, well, study harder, maybe next year. So you were literally excluded because of your race? Pretty much. So what happened was they gave everybody a test. You take the test and then based upon the results of the test, you are in the gifted and talented program. Well, the program goes on for a couple of weeks and all of a sudden we have to all take the test again. So we take a test again, different tests, but we take a test again. And everyone but me is still in the program after that test. Try your own conclusions. Okay, changing direction, going back to professionals. So before Metricstream, you were at IBM for years and your goal was to be CEO of IBM. And I know there's a bit of a story here because after a while you realized it was unlikely you were, you were going to get that job. Could you tell us about this? Sure. So I spent 14 years at IBM and I learned a lot and I, I did well. I moved around a lot for the company all over the country, matter of fact, around the world. Mm-hmm. And I got to the point where my boss reported to Lou Gerstner, the CEO at the time. There wasn't anyone higher than me in the company that looked like me. And from all indications, it says, okay, I'm on track, right? I'm on track. But things kept happening that made me believe that I actually wasn't up for consideration. I didn't feel they were paying me competitive rate. And they, if they really valued me and thought I was tracking, that they would have been paying me properly. Number two, little slights kept happening. Like once Lou Gerstner actually came to Tokyo, which is where I was working at the time. And one-on-ones were set up with many of my peers, but not with me. Okay, what does that tell you? So just a few things that I thought, "Mm, I don't know if this is really going to happen. And becoming a CEO is my goal. So I had to make the really hard decision to leave, which trust me was hard. I mean, I was a senior executive at the company. If I had stayed, even if I didn't become CEO, I would have had a great career, right? Done well. Yeah. And it was very safe. I knew the company. I knew what I was doing. It was well thought of. So leaving was really, really hard. But I kept keeping my eye on the prize. I wanted to be a CEO. And so if it wasn't going to happen at IBM, let's improve the odds so it happens somewhere else. I'm so glad that you you took that jump and, and took that risk. But one thing I was going to ask you about here is how do you know when to quit? I mean, as you say, you were there for 14, 15 years. It's such a big step after that tenure at a company to move. How can people practically evaluate their options if they're thinking about a move like this? Yeah. So the first thing I tell people is don't run from a situation, run to a situation. I see a lot of people leave their companies because something's happened. They're upset or they're angry or whatever it is. And so they take basically the first thing that comes along because they're ready to just leave the company. That's not a good way to leave. Yeah. Because when you jump into something, it means you haven't actually put your full thought into it. Is it really the right company? Is it the right job based on where you're trying to go? 
So take the time, right? When you decide to leave, that doesn't mean you leave tomorrow. It means you put a plan in place to figure out the best way to leave so that you are positioned properly. Two, make sure you try to solve the issues or concerns you have before you leave. You know, leaving Ivy was hard. Now, it wasn't the first time I raised issues about pay. It wasn't the first time I raised some of the issues that we talked about. So I always tried to get them addressed because frankly, at your existing company, you have a reputation. You know how things get done, right? So your ability to actually leverage that and move forward is pretty strong. When you move and change companies, you have to reestablish all those things. And that takes time. So if you can solve your issues and get opportunity where you are, it's actually a little easier, right? can be a little smoother. So try to fix where you are as long as it isn't a toxic environment um, or there's something fundamentally flawed, right, about the business or the business model. But if after trying all those things, it's still not working, then figure out what do you want to do next? And I don't mean next in terms of next job. I mean next in terms of your career plan. Because then you can look for a job that will set you up for that. So I'm asking everyone who comes on this podcast to share a bit about their own experience with limiting beliefs or times where self-doubt got in the way. And perhaps we've touched on on things a little bit, but you kindly shared two things we can discuss ahead of time. The first was the time when you were a new sales exec and you missed a big opportunity because you overprepared due to insecurity. Can you tell us about this? Sure. So here I am. We, I'd been a salesperson for several, for about three years, but I moved to a different area. I was now a senior sales rep. So it's a new branch, a new office. People don't know me yet. And I've got a brand new customer. So I uncovered an opportunity for a system 36. It was an IBM system back then to help with a maintenance kind of program for one of the big companies. So anyway, I wanted to make sure I did a great job because this was going to be my first quote product. So I wanted the customer to be impressed. I wanted the branch to be impressed, right? All those things. So I worked really hard. I even put together a whole financial model that would give him justification so he could just kind of put it, a cover on it and send it up internally, right? To get things approved. I did a really good job, but it took me, it took me probably two weeks in terms of getting everything, I's dotted, T's crossed, beautiful. And sure enough, I reviewed it with my boss before I submitted it. And he was like, oh, this is outstanding, Right. Great. I take it to the client. I show it to him. He's blown away. Ah, this is excellent. He said, but Shelly, I sure wish I'd gotten this about four days ago because I just got a budget cut. So I'm not going to be able to move forward with a new project. Whew. So that was a really hard lesson in 80% good and fast beats 100% perfect and slow mm. every time. And that helped me make sure that I wasn't overdoing things going forward because it cost me. I didn't get a commission, right? I didn't release some of the quota. I had to go go back to the branch and say, yeah, it was a great proposal, but I was too late, right? So it was kind of, it was a lose-lose all the way around. Mm. That's advice I actually really need to hear. I'm, <laughs> I think due to limiting beliefs and insecurity, I tend to really over-prepare for everything. These podcasts as well, I always come to these podcasts with about a hundred questions. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't really help because you sort of want to just have a natural conversation with someone really. But, um, I haven't quite worked out the balance there yet. Okay. So the second thing that you'd shared ahead of time was that you were selected for a key project. You weren't selected for a key project because you didn't tell people you wanted the opportunity. Yes, there was a task force being formed uh, to work on kind of a strategic plan for overall direction and launching a new product. 
And I thought, oh, this would be a great opportunity. So I was working hard, wanted to make sure that they knew that, hey, I could get all my work done and handle something else right. In addition, I thought, okay, if I just work hard, they'll see me and they'll pick me. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't get picked. And I was so disappointed. And I talked to my boss, right? We had a conversation. And I said, you know, I was really disappointed I didn't get picked for the project. And he said, Shelly, I didn't even know you were interested in being part of that. And I said, well, I was working hard and I wanted you to see through my results. And he said, you got to tell me, I can't read your mind. Okay. I made sure for the rest of my career and frankly, the rest of my life, I tell people all the time, ask for what you want. Ask for what you want. Otherwise, people won't know. They can't read your mind. This is also advice I need to hear, I think. I've heard a few people share stories recently of, I wonder slightly if if it's a gendered thing, not to make everything about gender, but I've heard a few women in senior leadership positions saying that they were just waiting for the tap on the shoulder, like waiting for someone to say, hey, it's time, it's your your big moment, but no one does unless you really push for it, right? Exactly. It just, you know, it it works that way sometimes, Mm. but you can't, but you can't count on it. And if that's your whole strategy, boy, the odds are not in your favor. Much better (laughs) to tell somebody what you want to do. And even though it's risky, because people are afraid, they're like, gosh, if I say what I want to do, and they tell me I'm not qualified, or I shouldn't Mm. do it, right? But that's the best. Because when you say, oh, I'd love to do this, and they say, "Mm, don't think you're ready. Don't walk away. That's a perfect opportunity. What you say is really why not? Why not? It's the most powerful two words you can ask or say is why not? Because then they'll have to tell you. Mm. And when they tell you, you now know what you need to work on to get ready for the next job, the next opportunity, the next project. It's something that children are very good at, right? Asking why, why, why? And we grow out of it and we just sort of accept, oh, okay, (laughs) this is the box I'm in, I'm going to stay here. If someone came to you, Shelley, for mentorship and you thought to yourself, mm, you know, I'm, I'm picking up on a fair bit of self-doubt or I'm sensing this person has some limiting beliefs that are blocking them. What would your advice to them be? You know, what I do actually for myself is when I'm facing something and I'm hesitating or concerned or I'm afraid, right? All those things. I ask myself, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? Mm. And literally, sometimes I write it down. Because when you just let it reverberate in your head, it just gets bigger and bigger. It's almost like the boogeyman, right? But when you write it down, it becomes very tangible, very tactical. You can look at it and say, oh, you know, I I can live with that. It's not going to kill me, right? And then it gives you the confidence and the courage to to move forward. Mm. Risk and opportunity are two sides of the same coin. If you aren't willing to take risks, you just aren't going to get as much opportunity. Mm. If someone is feeling really stuck, I mean, this, this was sort of me maybe a year ago, and I've, I've done a bit of work, and I'm happy to say much less stuck. I mean, I mean, it's just one of those things, it's so easy to give advice, but it's very difficult to take it on board and get yourself unstuck. I think it's important to have cheerleaders in your life. Yeah. And when I say cheerleaders, I mean real cheerleaders. Rah, rah, go, go, you got this, you can do it, right? I mean, people in your life, who, when you're feeling, oh, I'm not sure, you know, I should move forward, you don't, and you're feeling stuck, right, can help you get unstuck. Because sometimes we just get so caught up in our own heads that literally we can't see what's going on around us. So it's helpful to have people outside of us that can see us, that can remind us, right, all the things we can do. 
our capabilities, what we've done, what we've accomplished, kind of build us up. We all need it because the world is a little challenging, right? There's a lot of messaging that comes down from the sky telling us all the ways in which we're not quite enough, right? So we need people who are actually building us up to combat that. So true. So true. Okay, Shelley, before we wrap up, I was hoping that you would humor me and do some rapid fire questions. Sure. Are you up for it? I'm up for it. Okay. Rapid fire question number one. Are you more of an introvert or an extrovert? Extrovert. Are you more of a thinker or a doer? Doer. What time do you typically get up in the morning? Around 6, 6.30. Early. What time do you usually go to bed at night? Around 11. What's your favorite thing to have for breakfast? (laughs) Yogurt. Greek yogurt. (laughs) What's the best trip you've ever taken? Uh, The African safari. What book, apart from your own, has had the most impact on you? Mm. In middle school, I read a book about Harriet Tubman and her courage and leadership. Absolutely. It's something I think back on all the time. Mm. What leader inspires you the most? I'm going to give you the same answer. It's Harriet Tubman. (laughs) (laughs) Big Harriet Tubman fan. She's just been my person. Can you share one thing that is still on your professional bucket list? Mm. To become a lead director or chairman of a Fortune 500 board of directors. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Manage your calendar. Mm, Very good. Okay. Amazing. Shelley, thank you for doing my rapid fire round. Absolutely. This has been fun. So Shelley, as a final question, I'm asking everyone to nominate someone to come on this podcast. So either someone you think has an amazing growth story, or you think they have an interesting perspective on self-doubt or limiting beliefs. Mm, Donette Beverly. Donette Beverly is the executive vice president for Donnelly Financial Solutions. She grew up very poor in Jamaica and rose to the top echelons of corporate America. Amazing. Can you introduce me? Absolutely. Okay, Shelley, this has been so much fun. I'm so, so grateful to you for speaking to me today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.